Well, hey, everyone. Um, I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Nice to be here with all of you. Um, last Monday, I had started the chapter, The Family Afterwards, and didn't quite finish it. And I had thought I was going to finish it and then get into two employers. But I just kind of get the feels to just start with two employers. Um, now, lest you rush off and say, I'm not a boss, I don't have anyone working for me, I will tell you that there are some great recovery principles here. So whether you are new or new-ish or not so new, um, I think there's stuff that we can all learn. So if you have your book, the chapter starts on page 136. And it starts talking about a boss who had to deal with a few people who worked for him who committed suicide. Um, and he said on page 137, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So there's a couple things here. Um, I have to make sure that I'm an understanding person and that I intervene properly, right? If I am understanding or loving, but have bad information, I'm not going to do anyone any good, right? It's like if I went to a doctor and, you know, said I'm diabetic and the doctor was lovely and told me to take penicillin, I'd be in a lot of trouble. So we have to um, intervene properly with correct information. But we also have to have love, right? Imagine I go to the doctor and I say I'm diabetic and the doctor says, well, what do you not take care of yourself? Yeah, here's insulin and here's how to measure it out. But, you know, how would you let yourself get in this position? Well, I probably want to find another doctor or I may say, sorry, I'm just not doing this. And my diabetes just gets worse. So we always say here, um, good information and love. Those are the two things that we want to have. And again, it says, but for the great, but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. And it just makes me think on page 25, it says, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So I can be an understanding, loving person. I can give correct information, but if there is no God for me to help someone get in touch with, I'm useless. I'm like giving a diabetic an empty syringe because ultimately this program is about the grace of God coming in and rewiring our hearts so that the obsession with compulsive eating can't survive, can't thrive in us anymore. Um, and usually the first way we, um, we become willing to do the work to meet God is through the intervention of an understanding person. So page 138, there's a couple of um, recovery principles that we can practice. It says, we've imposed on the best of empl employers and we can scarcely blame them if they've been short with us. So this kind of tells me, if people in my life are short with me, I'm not just supposed to say, oh, they're nasty people. You know, my part in my resentment inventory is they're spiritually sick, I'll pray for them. I'm supposed to say, have I imposed on people? Have I treated people unkindly? Am I asking people to do for me what I can do for myself? Um, because if I do that, people aren't going to like me very much and they're going to be short with me. 
And then Bill Wilson, who wrote this chapter, um, starts telling a story. And he starts tells a story about a friend of his who's an officer in a large bank and who's one day shooting the breeze with Bill and is telling him about a guy who works for him who's a real alcoholic. And Bill says, this seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. Two hours. So what does that tell me? I'm supposed to put in the time. It's not take two food plans and call me in the morning and turn over your food. In the chapter, Working with Others, they go into great detail. We're supposed to find out about the person, their religious leanings, their history with food, because people like to feel like friends, like comrades. People do not like to feel like projects. So we want to put in the time, explain, and what do we explain? The malady and the symptoms. And well, what are the symptoms? The symptoms are, I have a powerful desire to stop, but I am unable to stop. Just like someone who has cancer and has a powerful desire to make her cancer cells stop multiplying, right? But without some outside intervention, doesn't have the power to do that. And that is the symptom that no matter how great the necessity or wish, I can't do it. And what's the malady that I tell myself I'm going to just have one, but I end up eating the whole box over and over and over. And we can get way into detail on that. And we do when we go through um, couple of the earlier chapters. So if anyone wants some information on that, just shoot me a text. Um, but we, the, I think the point is we spend the time with the person. But what does this, his friend, the banker say? He said, Bill, that's pretty interesting. But we've just told him that if he gets drunk again, he's going to lose his job. Well, we all know that doesn't work because um, as Bill Wilson said in the chapter Bill's story, fear sobered me for a bit. Fear can't cure me because fear isn't from God, right? Who of us ever recovered because someone said, you know, if you keep eating, you're going to gain weight, your blood pressure is going to go up, you're likely to have a heart attack, and you're going to die early. Who of us ever said, oh, gosh, thanks for telling me that. I didn't know it. I think I'll stop eating compulsively and then stopped forever. You know how many of us? Zero, zero. It doesn't work. Fear doesn't do it. Um, I was at an OA convention once and there was a woman there and she had diabetes and her doctor told her that if she didn't stop, it could damage her eyes and damage her kidneys. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog and was on dialysis fear doesn't do it. And so fear didn't do it with this banker guy. So the banker alcoholic, um, he got drunk again. And Bill's trying to convince his friend, the banker, that fear doesn't work, that you're threatening him with his job doesn't work. And what does Bill say? He says, I pointed out that I had had nothing to drink whatever for three years and this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off. 
I love that because he's saying he, in these thousand days, he had lots of difficulties and he didn't drink. And what does that tell us? That when we eat compulsively, it never, 0% of the time has to do with our circumstances. 100% of the time, it has to do with our spiritual condition. These guys, um, the early AAs went off to war and they stayed sober. I cannot think of anything more stressful than war, but I will tell you, I stayed abstinent, abstinent through the death of my dad, through having a miscarriage, um, through, you know, my mom has Alzheimer's now, um, through losing a job, um, raising teenagers, and none of it. And yet before I got in recovery, I would binge because it rained on a day I wanted to go outside in the sun. I mean, there was always an excuse. So whenever we say, I ate compulsively because, and the reason has to do with a person, place, or thing, we're on the wrong track. The answer is always because there is something wrong with my spiritual condition. And now I'm going to set about trying to find it. So Bill Wilson, you know, tells his banker friend, his banker friend's like, yeah, well, the guy's not going to drink again because he'll lose his job. And Bill says, there was nothing to do but wait. Sometimes all we can do is wait and pray. And I think that applies to if there's someone in recovery who we're desperate to help, who isn't willing to go to any length. We can't, we can't help them. We have to wait until they free fall a little further down. And for me, sometimes it has to do with my kids, right? Sometimes all I can do is wait and pray. My kids are both over 18. They're raised. Um, so if they're doing something I don't like, my job is to wait and pray and model good behavior. But that's it. Sometimes all we can do is wait and pray. So what happened to our poor banker, alcoholic friend? It says, presently the man did slip and was fired. So it says, then they contacted him. And it says, without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery without much ado because he had hit bottom. You know, the people who say, well, you know, I can't do like, for instance, I tell all my sponsees, I want them to spend 30 minutes every morning with God. The ones who say, well, I really can't do it. I can't get up that, you know, whatever. They haven't hit bottom because once we hit bottom, we are willing to do anything. When I um, hit bottom and I got a sponsor and I got a really tough sponsor. Um, and this was back in the day where there were no cell phones. And I had a job that started at nine o'clock in the morning. And my sponsor said, call me every morning at nine. And I said, but that's when I start work. And it was just like, that's the time I got. So I made arrangements with my job to start at 845 and I would work for 15 minutes. And then I would go outside to a payphone on the streets of New York City and make my call for 15 minutes. And it didn't occur to me to say, are you friggin' kidding me? Telling me to call you when it's time to start my job? Um, I just did it. And 
God knew my heart and God just arranged things that my boss um, said, okay. Now I'm not telling people that if you're sponsoring someone, tell them to call you while they're at work. Um, but I'm saying for me, that was just a demonstration that at that point I was desperate and I would have done anything. So it says, um, without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. Okay, what is that? The principle and procedure. The procedure, the 12 steps. Going through 12 steps in order, starting out by admitting we're powerless over food and our life is unmanageable, and going through to step 12 that starts with the promise. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the procedure. We go through the steps and the principles. Well, they're spiritual principles. We start practicing right from the first day. We start being honest right from day one. We don't have to wait till we're on like step six till we've, you know, inventoried all our dishonesty. We can start being honest right away. We can start being unselfish and practicing self-sacrifice. That does not mean sitting in my nice, comfortable house, making an outreach call or accepting an outreach call is a self-sacrifice for the most part. A self-sacrifice by definition means I'm giving up something that I want in order to help someone else. So for me, I was used to be an American Idol junkie. And so if someone called me like on the, when it was the American Idol finale, and I took the call, that might be a self-sacrifice. But usually we have to think, what am I giving up? Giving up time, giving up sleep, giving up something in order to help someone else. Okay, um, so continuing on page 139, they're talking to employers and they say, okay, if you're a moderate drinker, you may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reaction, it's possible for you to be, become quite sure of many things, which so far as an alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. You know, we are people who have very strong opinions and often prejudices against things. And I think for me, what these sentences are is a warning that I'm not supposed to judge, that there are some people in OA who think no one should ever have a cup of coffee. And there are some people who think no one should ever have wheat, even if they're not gluten intolerant. And I think what this is saying is we can just kind of relax on that kind of stuff. Yes, there are certain things, you know, we might all agree on that, you know, to go out and eat a gallon of ice cream, no one should ever do that. But if someone, you know, if my food plan doesn't allow me to have coffee and yours does, it doesn't make my food plan better. This isn't a game of whoever has the strictest food plan is the most spiritual person. It doesn't work that way. So let's see, page 140, it tells the alcoholic, can you discard the feeling that you're dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will? If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? And I love this because if I see, you know, if someone comes up and starts yelling at me, I'm probably going to get mad. 
But if then someone whispers in my ear, oh, he has a brain tumor, he can't help it. I'm probably not going to be mad. So sometimes it helps to see people as them spiritually sick, but, you know, so that we have empathy. However, we don't want to fall off on the other side of the bed. And anyone who doesn't do everything that I, in my great wisdom, know that they should must be a poor spiritually sick person down in the valley while I'm up on a mountaintop. So we have empathy without superiority. That's a hard place to get to. I have not mastered it, but I think it's a good goal to have. Um, bottom of page 140, it says, when drinking or getting over about an alcoholic or compulsive eater, sometimes the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion will be terrible. So sometimes we have a healthy conscience and we feel terrible about the things that we do. But you know what? A healthy conscience won't help me. A healthy conscience saying, eating all this food, which puts me in a food coma so that I can't be around for the people in my life, and I feel terrible about it, it doesn't do anything to stop it. Again, just like if I had cancer and I felt terrible that I had cancer because, you know, then I couldn't serve my family, it wouldn't make my cancer cells stop multiplying. Um, in the chap, in the doctor's opinion on Roman numeral 30 XXX, it talks about being over remorseful and it says being over remorseful doesn't help. Let, let me get the exact words. It talks about people who are over remorseful and make many resolutions, right? I will not binge again, but never a decision. What kind of decision are they talking about? Where's the word decision used in our steps? Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. A healthy conscience alone won't do it. I need to surrender my entire life to God. Then, as it says in the doctor's opinion, I'm suddenly able to easily do what I couldn't before, easily control my desire for excess food. Okay. So then they're saying, yeah, okay, if you're an employer and you're, you start with someone and they start this path and they, um, they get drunk, they say to the employer, he may as well be discharged the sooner the better if you're sure he doesn't want to stop. And as far as sponsoring, this is what I would say. If we are sure a person doesn't, isn't willing to go to any lengths, Yes, we're doing them no favor by continuing to sponsor them. How do I know if someone's willing to go to any length? It's not necessarily that they stop binging because maybe they're early on in the steps and have an access power or they got tripped up on something. Here's how I know if someone isn't willing to go to any length. If I tell them they have to make three phone calls a day and weigh and measure their food and spend 30 minutes in the morning with God and they tell me, I haven't weighed and measured my food. I only made one phone call and I only spent 15 minutes with God. There's a person who is not willing to go to any length. So what I generally do is I give, I don't like to say a warning. I just point out that 
willingness opens the door to grace. And without willingness, it's almost like you're tying God's hands. And then if they persist in not doing what I've asked them to do, even if they stay abstinent, I will not continue sponsoring them. I'm not, I read it, the book that I'm not allowed to sponsor them because page 58 says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So someone's not willing to go to any lengths, not ready to take the steps. Um, okay, so Bill then talks about his own life. And he said, had they fired me first and had they taken steps to see I was presented with the solution contained in this book? That great, our book contains a solution. It says, I might've returned to them six months later a well man. So anyone who's here, you know, by uh, July 5th, you could be a totally changed person. And actually we've seen it happen generally in half the time within three months. So April, April 5th, you can be like a totally recovered new person. Even if you were binging today, if you get yourself a sponsor, who's worked these steps and commit to working them three months tops, you can be a new person. Okay. Page 142, a couple more principles. It says next, he, meaning the recovering alcoholic can be assured that you don't intend to lecture, moralize, or condemn. Okay. Express a lack of hard feeling. People need to feel cared for. So if I'm lecturing, um, or condemning two things. One, it's not helpful to the other person because next time they have a problem, you think they're going to want to talk to me about it? No. Um, and also it's not good for me if I put myself in a position that I have a right to lecture or condemn. I'm just someone who got on the bus, maybe a couple stops before another person, but there are plenty of people who got on a couple of stops before me. We're all on the same bus heading, headed toward God. Um, okay. Then it says, you ask a man, um, will he take every necessary step, submit to anything to get well, to stop drinking forever, not just to fit in that little black dress when we go to our high school reunion and see that boy who dumped us 20 years ago forever. And it says, we probe. If he says yes, does he mean it? It says, we believe a person should be thoroughly probed, be satisfied he's not deceiving himself or you. So how do we do that? So here's how I do it. If someone asks me to sponsor them, I give them something to do. Before I say yes or no, I give them something to do. And I want to see if they come back and do it. Generally, I give them a podcast and have them write something on the podcast. Um, back then, what they recommend in the book is you give them a copy of this big book and they read the entire book or at least the text section. Like they want to make sure this person means business. So then when the person comes back, if they've done the work, I lay out for them everything that I require of my sponsees and I tell them to take a day to think about it and tell them if you want to work with someone else, no hard feelings. And okay, it says, once that happens, um, after satisfying yourself, bottom, 
of 142, after satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, then you may suggest a definite course of action. So we don't give instruction until we know that someone who's someone's willing to do it. And it says, okay, for alcoholics who are drinking or just getting over a spree, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. And I think for us physical, um, for compulsive eaters, instead of saying physical treatment, I would say a food plan is desirable, even imperative. Um, not all sponsors require one. I do. Um, and I want things weighed and measured because with alcohol, you know you're abstinent if you're not drinking alcohol. With compulsive eating, you know you're abstinent if you're eating what's on your food plan, the quantities and the the kinds of food that are on your food plan. Um, okay, it, it says, but it should be pointed out, page 143, that the physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Food plan is just a small part. It says, if he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart, to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. So look what they're telling us. We have to have a change of heart, a transformation of thought and attitude. That word transformation, it's like caterpillar to butterfly stuff. And I have a note in my margin here. God never mends. He creates anew. So God's not just going to mend. He's going to recreate. And a change of heart. My heart did need to be changed, you know, like a dirty diaper needs to be changed. I had a dirty, self-centered, self-involved heart, and it needed to be changed. And that's what the process of the steps do. Changes our hearts so that my selfish, self-centered priorities become more like God's generous and loving priorities. That's what the steps are all about. That's the goal of these steps. Okay, um, page 144, they say, if the book is read the moment the patient or the fellow is able, while acutely depressed, realization of his condition may come to him. And we hope the doctor will tell the person the truth. Um, we give real hope. False hope can be deadly. False hope is just keep oh, coming. Just keep coming. It gets better. That doesn't do anyone any good. Um, the real hope is you're in trouble if you're a real compulsive eater like me. It doesn't get better. And once the person says, oh my goodness, I am that kind of compulsive eater, they will say, what did you do to recover? And then we can tell them about building a bridge to God and how we can recover. And they tell us that if you do this, if you keep working with people, the percentage of successes will gratify you. Um, it will never be 100%, which as sponsors keeps us humble, um, but it's gratifying to see people recover. And you know, it also tells me I'm never fully responsible for another person's recovery. I'm, res you know, new people who just get through the steps are often scared, like, you know, I'm, I may say something wrong, do something wrong. You know what? You may. I have, 
I still do sometimes, it's okay. I'm responsible for doing my best, for studying this book so that I can convey correct information and for being loving and kind. If I make a mistake, God's big enough to cover my mistakes. And that's why I always tell people, talk to other people every day. Three, talk to three recovered people other than me. This way, if they say, oh, Janet said to do this, and three people say, what? That makes no sense. Well, then I'll, I will have learned something. Okay, page 145, it talks about um, a lot of principles we can practice. It says, this program demands rigorous honesty that if we're not honest, it's like we're taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, go away God, um, across our hearts. And then it tells us we are people who cannot bear business tales or criticize our associates. So we leave the gossip to people who don't need to recover, whether it's a bad thing or a good thing or not. We don't, we really don't have to have an opinion on. We just have to say, I can't do it. And it tells us what our enemies are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. Resentment, being angry about something everyone else does. Jealousy, um, I looked it up. Being hostile toward a rival or one I believe has an advantage. Jealous of the person who got the promotion that I didn't get. Um, envious. That's coveting what another person has. So one is kind of wishing ill will to someone who has what I want. And the other is wanting things that someone else has. Um, enemies for us. Frustration, another enemy. Frustration. Things aren't going my way and I'm throwing an emotional temper tantrum. And fear. Because fear means I'm not trusting my God. Um, they tell us we can't slyly carry tales. What's a way to slyly carry tales? To say, oh, can you please pray for, you know, Susie Joe who's cheating on her husband and, you know, we've got to pray for her soul. No, we don't do things like that. Um, okay, page 146, it tells us that we are people who should be on our medal to make good. So it's not just like, okay, I've made my amends, let's call it a day, we should always be looking, how can I bring some good into this situation? What do I, how can I do it? Um, let's see, bottom of page 146. Again, they talk about honesty and they say how important it is. It says, guy's wife may call the boss and say, my husband's sick. And the boss may say, nah, I bet he's drunk. And this is what they say. If he is drunk and is still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So what they're telling us is even if you pick up, go to your sponsor and be honest, because if you're not, you don't have a prayer of getting better. And remember, if we're not honest with our sponsors, we've just created an idol, a false God out of our sponsor saying, as long as I have this sponsor, I'll be okay. A sponsor has zero power to get you recovered. Only God does. A sponsor can just give you good information that can help you. My sponsor says the job of a sponsor is to take the sponsee 
and put her hand in God's hand. So we want to be honest always. Number one, if we can't do anything else, we can be honest. We can look for a way to do a self-sacrifice to help another person. Um, page 147, they say, if someone stumbles, you have to decide whether to let him go. Um, and again, this is talking to employers and they say you should feel under no obligation to keep him on for your obligation has been well discharged already. Well, in the front of this book, they, um, they tell me that makes me think I should feel obligated to help someone, even if they pick up, as long as they're doing the work. Um, because if they're doing the work, they won't be picking up for much longer. Remember, 25% of the original members of AA got sober after some relapse. 25% of them didn't get sober right away. It took me six and a half years of going to Overeaters Anonymous, working hard, having about 50 different sponsors until I got abstinent. So I'm. I'm part of that 25%. So we don't want to be people who are quick to say, oh, you picked up, goodbye. Mm -mm. Our book doesn't support that. Um, and then I'm just going to flip to page 149, where it tells us um, some principles to practice. It says, the right sort of man, the kind who recovers, won't want to be made a favorite. He won't want anyone to say, oh, you're my favorite. So we don't look to our sponsors and think, oh, I want to be their favorite sponsee or our boss and say, I want to be the favorite employee. We don't. We just want to do a good job. And it says we don't impose. We are people who don't impose on others. Far from it. We, it says he will work like the devil and thank you till his dying day. Hard work and gratitude that that's what this program is. And on page 150, Bill closes by saying um, about these people who've recovered, they have a new attitude and they've been saved from a living death. They've been rescued. And he says, I've enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. Back when I was in the illness, I didn't enjoy helping people one single bit, but it says he enjoyed it. And I don't really have time to like finish through the family afterwards from where I left off, but I do want to just um, quickly skip to page 135, the very end of the chapter, where it says we have three little mottos, which are apropos. So the first thing I want to say is not all mottos or slogans are good. There's some slogans that come about that people just repeat because they hear them, but they're wrong. And one of those is like, keep the memory green. Um, it's like, if I can remember hard enough how bad it was, I'll be able to stop. But our book tells us on page 24, we are unable to have our memory stop us. Our memory doesn't work. So I just want to encourage us all to think. And just because we hear something said at a meeting or said by someone, you know, with like a strong personality, like even me, if you hear something that doesn't make sense, Check it out. See if it comports with what's in this big book. They say first things first. Um, on page 190, there was a guy, AA number three. And when they came to talk to him in the hospital, he said, um, 
Well, it's going to be tough because I do some other things. I smoke cigarettes and play penny ante poker and sometimes bet on the horse races. And they say, don't you think you're having more trouble with this drinking than with anything else? Don't you believe you're going to have all you can do to get rid of that? So um, they're saying first things first, if you're a compulsive eater and it's ruining your life, you know, worry about that. Like that's, that's the first thing. The line is actually taken um, from the New Testament where it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things will be added to you. Seek God first. Um, live and let live. I have to work this program. Everyone else can pretty much do what they want. Now I get to put up boundaries, right? You know, if, if a robber is coming into my house, live and let live doesn't mean, you know, let him take all my money. I'm allowed to lock my door. Um, but I don't need to control other people. They can live the lives they want to live. And I can be happy no matter what anyone else does. And then says, easy does it. Just relax. Like if you're doing this work, the miracle will happen. Absolutely guaranteed. And with that, I will pass.